This is the second part of our conversation where we keep exploring the larger questions into the future of humanity and also where we come from. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's continue. Yeah, I mean, probably maybe loss of human story. I mean, I don't see any human story right now there's just as as you can see physical and also you know mental factions exist and technocrat mm. highly rational uh and 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 the science which is turning a bit towards again this ideological religious omnipotent kind of uh solution providers uh, i mean the, the, of course all of us and the different characters has should have a seat on the table but shouldn't i mean it looks like that they are the only ones at this point who have the seat on the table and mm. we we maybe it's it's another just the side effect of you know we you can say divorcing ourselves from older myths and the confusions and we actually maybe divorce some part of that self which connects us to our own uh, story and uh, also to the capacity we have and how dangerous we can be and by looking at it we can actually understand that what acts can impact and connects us to the nature and you know again the of course i'm i'm not talking from a religious point of view but again these limiting modalities where you can't talk about self and soul or whatever the vocabulary is uh, mm. it's it's again damaging in a way that as a human you just don't know at this point you know as as a storyteller or 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 how our language has developed that who really we are i mean it's just uh, tons of social overwhelm anxiety for for general people where they just you know compare yourself with 7 billion people all the time try to have these echo chambers and that's just the dominant na- narrative rather than aligning ourselves with our environment and the forces and accepting it that i mean or 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 letting go you know maybe this epidemic you see like there's a epidemic of control also um around mm. around yeah i mean i think it's things are very tribal you know yeah. we we split back into tribes which is quite interesting because if you look to our origin i mean and if you look to indigenous communities of whom the relations with the wider world are in effect severed so if you you know were to look some of the more remote tribes of for example the amazon you actually find there's a very coherent sense of identity and their generally speaking although they are typically sort of ally colonialism portrayed as having a very simplistic view of life uh the you know if you look to the mythologies and if you look to the belief systems of these indigenous peoples they're actually very sophisticated they're they're highly layered they exhibit a profound understanding of the systemic nature of life um structurally they all have well certainly all they that i have studied have correlations um there are you know certain narratives that come up time and again such for example is the idea 
that in the possession of knowledge, um, the acquisition not only of the control of fire, but of, of knowledge more generally, there comes a price, a price. And it's a price that is eternal and it is a price that is great. And in that sense, the, the myths and, of course, many world religions, their attempt essentially is to imbue a sense of responsibility, a sense of the responsibility that comes with knowledge. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, of course, we have societies that are highly, uh, they are very diversified, they are very big typically, and they have fractured. And it does seem they are fracturing yet more in that not, you know, not merely is it the case that we have polarised societies now, but within and of those polarised societies, we have even more fracturing. So, for example, if we look to the sustainability community, on the one hand, we have they that believe that, yes, we should, and this is my belief, as it were, this is my way of operating, that um, think it imperative that we have everyone at the table and we listen to everybody and we try to understand everybody's perspective and we try and find the correlations, we try and find the areas of contention and we try and navigate a compromise. And in that sense, we recognise that there is inherent logic in the views of everyone because even they you know, that are actually typically portrayed as being anti-environmental. They have an inherent logic. There's a reason why they think the way they do. Then at the other end of the spectrum, we have uh, what is actually a very bourgeoisie perspective and that we have they that imagine that there are, as it were, the truth keepers and that those individuals um, ought dictate what everyone else should do. And it tends to be a very dogmatic approach. So it tends to be uh, all about you shouldn't. So you shouldn't fly and you shouldn't own a car and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. And that in itself is, it, it's a very insular approach in that it tends not to actually accept that, you know, these issues are very complex. I mean, it's a very complex issue as to whether or not there is a rationale to fly or not. You know, I would argue that, if it's for a trivial purpose or if you're flying a lot, then you should re-examine your, your travel. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd argue there is there is actually a rationale for that. But then again, uh, you know, if we all stop flying, there are profound and, and awful repercussions from that, be it that, you know, many loved ones would not get to see one another. Cultures would become yet more insulated, more, yet more cut off. Uh, critical supplies for science and medicine and so forth would not be able to reach their destination in the, the time required in order for certain experiments and, and um, you know, medical procedures and so forth to occur. So these things are really very complex. But the sustainability community in and of itself, they're often portrayed as being a unit, as being a solid, um, you know, delineated group of people is incredibly fractured. And that uh, same story is now manifest across many facets of society. And it's causing problems. And as you say, we have no common story as a, as a species right now. I mean, ironically, you know, you could argue if you if you actually expand the timeline, and if you look at us uh, from an anthropological uh, perspective over, you know, not uh, mere years or tens of years or centuries, but over epochs, then yes, we absolutely have a story. But right now, there is a loss of story. And that is playing out in many different ways. And what it means is that there is, um, yes, there's a lack or a confusion over identity. There are disputes over who it is that we are, what it is that we should be doing. 
And I think the the question of, of reconciling that is, is incredibly difficult because, of course, the whole the concept of the Internet, the reason that many were so eager to create the Internet and to develop this global net, this global communication platform, was because the idea was, you know, it would make the world smaller and it would enable us to communicate with our fellow man and to exchange information en masse that supposedly would bring us together. It would supposedly make us more united. But actually, when we look at the world today and across the journey of, you know, the the, the, um, the period since the advent of going online, of the, of the birth of the World Wide Web, that is not true in that what has instead happened is that we've reconfigured, wherein we're still every bit as tribal as we once were, but we've just, we've just slightly moved, uh, you know, the... Um, parameters of, of, you know, how those tribes are formed. So instead of necessarily being tribal within and of our geographic space, i.e. the people that we're meeting, or we would have been meeting day to day, we're now tribal with groups that we've met online or, you know, in some other um, digitally facilitated context. And it is an incredible mess. Um, there are some incredibly unfortunate things coming from it. And, you know, I think it is an extremely important area to research and to um to try to gain understanding on but you know from my perspective i really don't have much of an idea to be honest as to how the dickens we actually do reconcile it because as is you know i think we're in a very we're in a very bleak place yeah i mean uh so uh i can you hear me yeah Oh, perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this actually, uh, what you're talking about environmentalism, that how, you know, there's a bit of a separation in this moment, a movement where, you know, there's a purity of, um, you know, staying with the um, local solutions and minimum technology, but then there's some of the people who are maybe leading at some point, they're like, well, you know what, it's coming, we can't really uh resist it so probably be part of it and you know just you know soften the edges of this issue and uh, they're saying okay yes you know even relying on um these big corporations uh without it the technology wouldn't the, the type of technology which could be used to save probably uh the environment requires level of this hungry unlimited growth metropolis places so so there's a there's this conflict and then overall we we as, as a human and our relationship with the environment we have an issue of at first separation which is just oh. like everywhere and then we are now trying at some point also reconcile ourselves with these ideas like animism but more not not more like fairy tale but more evolved maybe trying to be a bit more grounded that you know it's not about us and it's nothing to do with anthropocentrism but the problem still and another another level on the top of it even though we are trying it it's still we do have the technology and it kind of makes us you know a bit powerful a bit ominous at at, at point so there's like a lot of issues uh, going on and on the top of uh, each other and I, I i i don't know what's the what are what is it our urge to understand complex system and then control it still i mean 
Well, I think, you know, if there is a positive, you know, often when I when I don't have an answer, the first place I look is to history usually. And if we look back through the history or the recorded history of humanity, what we know from that, and particularly this past several hundred years, is that we go through periods when, I mean, there's always a wrestle. There's always a wrestle between what is essentially the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, either haves and the have-nots. And that, well, I mean, it's certainly um, a problem that goes back as, as far as the written record. Although there are, if we look to the Bronze Age, there were certain peoples um, that, if, if you like, had a more equitable society than we do today, in that they um, were they were better able to distribute wealth in a way that was fair. That said, that was typically happening when resources were abundant and the environment was in quite a stable, you know, relatively stable state. However, again, if we look to um, the East, again, the, the history of China, there were periods when China was relatively um, peaceful and and collaborative with its. Um, you know, both within and of itself and with its immediate neighbours. And then there were, in contrast to that, there were periods of warfare. And essentially, there's been this sort of bouncing to and fro when, you know, we go through periods when we're getting along rather better, and then we we go through periods when we're not. But I think if I do, if, if there is a glimmer of hope in the current situation, it's that if we were to look back to perhaps the closest proxy we have to now, which might perhaps be the 1300s or the 1600s, when Britain and indeed around the world, but I'm, I'm focusing on Britain because that's the period uh, historically that I tend to pay a bit more attention to with regard to this issue. Um, there was extreme inequality and there were there, there was a lot of conflict, um, particularly, for example, if we look at the early 1600s. We had essentially gone through a period in which, of course, having the discovery of America and, if you like, the age of adventure when Portugal and Spain and Britain and France and so forth were going out around the world. They were claiming territories. They were claiming the assets of um, peoples over which really technically, I mean, ethically, they had no right, but they they obviously uh, inflicted themselves on these other places and they took their assets um, they used that money, if there was a silver lining, they used that money to fuel the Renaissance and to fuel um, the golden age, as it were. And then after, you know, having done that, um, the 1600s came along in a period of great environmental hardship, uh, you know, extremes of heat, uh, hot weather of droughts against extreme cold events. And of course, with that, the pandemics and so forth. Um, and History, you know, the, the history makes apparent that society started to become more fragmented. British society was, you know, was yet further diverging. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of resentment. And, of course, the civil war occurred. Um, you know, the king, King Charles, uh, came to uh, an end. And we tried to restructure. Britain tried to restructure. And you know, to what extent it did, because of course, you know, having then revolted, uh, <laughs> we sort of, hmm. we then uh, re-embraced the, the uh, inherent hierarchy, we embraced monarchy once more. Um, but there, there was nonetheless this, this breaking point at which society, or rather they that had been disenfranchised said, you know, enough is enough. And we are going to 
um, use whatsoever means that are at our disposal to build a more equitable society um, and to challenge that, you know, which is unfair. And I think that that is happening now, although it's happening in a way that is less clear to uh, delineate than back in, in those times, because, of course, we have got a more complex society. We are living in a world, I mean, to an extent, that was a globalised time and that we, you know, we were, we were travelling all over the world. We were, um, you know, bringing in goods and uh, supplies from all over, all over, you know, the planet. And so it was, in effect, a, a globalised era then, but it's more so now. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, on the surface of it, it, it it can be quite hard to sort of decipher what's going on. But I do think there is a bit of an uprising. And I do think that as in the 1600s and back in the 1300s, it is coming in waves. It's not a one-off event. It's a series of events. And I think probably about, you know, maybe 70 years from now, we'll be able to, you know, obviously we'll probably be gone by then, but people will be able to look back and they'll be able to unravel what was going on and say, well, yes, we'd reached the tipping point and the system was set to reconfigure and through a variety of process, it did. And these are some of the positives that came out from that. And so, you know, my, I guess my view is that, um, yeah, there are challenges, but there are signs that within and of that, there are probably some, some much needed reconfigurations that are going to occur. But of course, in and of themselves, they're difficult processes. And, um, you know, they invariably involve, um, you know, some, some fractions of the community suffering or um you know being exposed to a greater level of threat and, and discomfort than is desirable yeah hopefully i mean as there are um in our personal life there there are moments where you can you know face the challenge as a species hopefully we can face the challenge and transcend and i'm sure maybe there are some ways how you know life is tested and uh, yeah either we perish or we you know transcend and be able to connect to our deeper wisdom but okay now a little bit of a different topic so you uh, wrote about a fragment of our prophylic past if i'm pronouncing mm -hmm. it correct i mean what is this yeah i i want to pyrophilic so okay. it's that word, pyrophilic is essentially, you'll know of biophilia and you'll yeah. know of biophilic. So yeah. biophilic is obviously relating to that which is um, embracing of, of nature or of, the, or of a concept of nature. So pyrophilia is a word I've coined to if essentially convey um, an acceptance of fire as a fundamental and integral aspect of the functioning of life on earth of of our world okay so but this is uh, is this the story which you were writing about the um palm tree in australia i mean i i, I actually want to know about it is this the same thing i'm talking about oh yeah um well that's actually relating to to myths it wasn't me that was writing about the the palm tree it was um david bowman who was one of the foremost fire ecologists on earth so he uh, I can't even remember how many papers he's authored. It's something like it's in excess of over 550 papers, books, and other publications. He is the oracle on fire ecology. Wow. And one of the, uh, an interesting paper that he published with some peers a couple of years ago, 
interrogated the um, the possibility that um, an Aboriginal tale of how the only native palm in Australia came to be in a certain place. And what they did is they decrypted, in effect, the mythological tale through the lens of fire ecology. Now, that is um, a general approach to mythology that has been building an interest of the past, well, it's now a couple of decades, wherein there are whole research teams that are, for example, looking for correlations between um, mythological accounts of geological and other environmental events and reality. And, and that actually has uses both from the perspective of understanding how ancient peoples perceived of their world, but also in terms of trying to date the origin of mythological tales. And therefore, there's an inherent anthropological and wider research value to attempting to decrypt, is there, you know, is there a correlation? Um, that is something that I picked up on and that I followed through in the thesis and that I interrogated the origin of fire myths and my theory, in fact, or my hypothesis, uh, because it's not proven and indeed it's such a complex um, field that is dealing with such ancient data as it were, that um, it may never be proven. But my hypothesis is that the origin of fire myth is born of real world observation. And the reason for this is that when we look to the fire myths about the world, of which there are uh, very many in different cultures, we find that like language, um, they have, for example, like the Indo-European language, they have common structures, they have commonalities in their narrative, they have common characteristics in terms of the um, attributes that are affiliated to key characters, to you know, key components of these myths. And with relation to their discussions on fire, certainly with respect to, you mentioned Prometheus. Now, of course, Prometheus was um, said to have stolen fire from, uh, and knowledge of fire from Athena and uh, Hephaestus. And of course, the, the other character in that trio was Zeus, the, uh, if you like, the king, the, the, or the god of the gods. Um, and looking at that, that myth and, and tracing it back through to pre-Socratic uh, times, both the poetry of Sappho and um, the Athenians and the, the earlier groups that um, essentially explored and, and authored mythologies around that um, particular tale. Um, yeah, there, there, are, there are similarities with the origin of fire myths of other cultures in India in South America and so forth. And because of the fact, you know, we know that these, these tales are very ancient, as I said, structurally these myths and narratively and in terms of meaning, these have commonalities, which if we were to apply the same principles as etymology, i.e. how and why language evolved as it did, we'd be looking at a common origin. We would be looking in order for there to be these um, similarities in structure and meaning and so forth, we'd be looking at a point of common origin, which if we are to trace our known uh, or the known movements of humans as they spread out around the world and as these cultures formed, and obviously we know a fair amount about the, the origins or the, the date, as it were, of arrival of certain peoples in certain parts of the world, um, you know, suggests that these, these origin of fire myths have a 
yeah, they have a common source um, or they have one of a limited number of common sources that predate the migration of these peoples and the evolution of their cultures. Because, of course, in that process, as with language, there are modifications that are made. So, for example, one of the things I've identified is that though, for example, different species um, are referred to or, you know, obviously different names um, and different um, incarnations of objects of which the, the purpose is the same, for example, a torch or a fennel, a fennel stick. Um, but the the um, the incarnation, if you like, is modified to be bespoke to that culture, i.e. the sort of tools or names or, uh, you know, sort of things that were um that were had, had evolved within that particular community over time, and if that is true, um, as in you know, as in the case, if if there is truth in this hypothesis, as with Bowman's um, hypothesis, um, or indeed it's now proven as theory, um, that the origin of the palm tree, the native Australian palm tree, was in fact does in fact correlate with the Aboriginal myth uh, story then you know that has profound implications because what that is saying is that these these mythologies they are more than just tall tales they are in effect um what you might think of as a system of communication which a little like a scientific paper today is structured in such a way that it's it's conveying important knowledge it's it's conveying uh, information that is um you know fundamental to these persons, these these communities, understanding of the world, and certainly again, in order to in order that we you know to to add another layer of understanding to um, where I'm heading with this, different um, cultures obviously they not merely adapt their language, so the actual wording that they use, and I've I've spoken a bit to the etymology actually in in the thesis discussion. But of course, they also use symbolism. They use uh, symbolism in terms of iconography. They use symbolism in terms of numerology. And if we look at it on that level, not just in terms of the narrative and the meaning and so forth, but we find that there are, again, there are structures, there are symbols that are coming up time and time and time again. And so in that context, mythology itself has potentially, it has an evolutionary story that if understood, enables us to understand how human culture and how human belief systems actually evolved. And with that, I mean, if we were to bring in a couple of the other theorists on this, I've spoken at length about the work of a chap called Terence Turner. Now, Terence Turner will be known amongst they that um, are very attuned to um, indigenous rights, to human rights, and to the efforts to protect um, Indigenous communities and their interests around the world, because he um, he essentially was extremely active in in that regard for many years and, and undertook some very notable works. But Terence Turner was actually an anthropologist that essentially carried on the work of Levi Strauss, and actually within of the same region in the in the Amazonian Amazonian for, um, the Amazon forest, and he added another layer to Strauss's work in that. Whereas Strauss had only really looked at the structure of mythology, Terence Turner actually really got into the meaning. And so he took, as it were, the vessel um, of understanding that a little bit forward. He actually spent a number of decades in the Amazonian forests um, with particular communities to decrypt their, their mythologies. 
And in his work, essentially what he's done, and this again is, is a point that I've picked up on and discussed, he essentially emphasized how, I mean, not in so many words, but he essentially spoke to the fact that understanding a mythology until relatively recently was very much tainted by colonialism and by the elitist global north narrative, the idea that um, other peoples are primitive, other peoples um, are savage, to, to use the Levi Straussian term. Um, and, you know, Turner's work really, um, his, his book came out, it's well worth the read. Um, it came out just a couple of years ago. I actually would have, I, I edited it in latterly into the thesis, actually, um, because originally the book had come out so very, very recently to when I, it, well, it essentially went to print pretty much at the time I was submitting. So I, I hadn't really had time to um, to craft that that um, discussion with any um, with any depth. So I actually that was that was one of the edits I made. I actually bumped in Turner um, latterly um, before the final submission. Um, but you know he he built on this theme, and I too have have spoken to the fact that you know when we think to mythology, when we think also to myth, to legends, and to really all forms of communication of knowledge of other peoples, of indigenous peoples, of, of ancient peoples, we really need to be aware of our prejudices. We really need to be aware that actually, um, just because we don't understand uh, the way in which these, these, um, these narratives are structured, just because the symbolism is alien to us, just because the um, the, the relations that these mythologies have to others and that, you know, when you look to the mythologies of the ancient world and indeed of um, extant indigenous peoples, the mythologies, they act, they're not, they're not standalone. You know, you can think of them almost like a soap opera in that they are related to an ongoing narrative. In order to really understand one mythology, you need to be, un, you need to read and you need to know the narratives of they that relate to it. And of course, the, the bigger that matrix of, of, um, mythologies that you then understand and in turn the the better your understanding of the the characters and the symbols within and of those mythologies the better your understanding of the language that is in use and the better your understanding of the meaning and that I think is really important and some people may you know wonder well why on earth would someone that was really trying to um to challenge the current the contemporary um approach to fire I the idea that you know we need to we need to control it. We need to eradicate it. We need to, you know, remove it from um, as much of, of our, um, you know, uh, wild landscapes and so forth as possible. I, you know, the, the common sort of uh, narrative of the, the popular media. Why would one? Wh why would one dig into these ancient mythologies? Why would one dig into the indigenous um, beliefs? And the reason is very simple. If we don't understand how other people understand uh, fire, if we don't uh, actually recognize how our own ideologies differentiate from they of other from others and over time then ours is a very limited understanding of how and why we came to be where we are in that you know we have to compare we have to, we have to see where the differentials are in order to really get to the roots of how we arrived at the place that we're at and so um yeah it's it's um it's it's an it's a piece within a piece um and you know, I um, I don't know quite, you know, where I will take the mythologies discussion, but certainly in terms of how much there is to research, um, 
you know, I've since reviewed my own work. In fact, you know, I've I've been back through my own thesis and I've I've written various notes and and observed things that I actually hadn't observed in the original authorship. And so I've already built it out. And, you know, I would hope that there are others. I know certainly, as I said, Bowman has already looked at this. But I would hope that about the world, there are many others that are really starting to cotton on to the fact that, you know, there is there is this rich information, there is this structured information, there is this con- complexity um, narrative that is very much clear in, in these mythologies and in the belief systems to which they relate that have, in effect, been hidden to the greater part of the Western world, for, to the global north, for a not insignificant amount of time because we simply hadn't looked. We simply hadn't asked the question, well, you know, could it be that actually, uh, you know, the use, for example, of certain species, such as the pine, you know, references to pine cones or to oaks or to other, uh, these are, I'm speaking to well fire adapted species, you know, could it be that their use is not incidental, that this is not, uh, you know, a, a mere, um, you know, accident that they have chosen to reference these particular species in a particular way. Um, and instead be the fact that, you know, these peoples really understood their landscape. They really understood these species. They understood the interplay between fire and, um, you know, and the natural world. They understood the symbiosis and they conveyed it in these rich tapestries of um, mythologies and other narratives that are all there, all there. And all along, just waiting for us to take a look and in doing so to, as I said, to understand ourselves better, but also to understand them better, to understand our ancestors better and to understand the other peoples with whom we share the planet better. Beautiful. I, I 100%, I, I couldn't agree more to what you are saying. Um well, I'm aware of the time. Is there anything else you want to add as in what are you doing now? And if people maybe want to uh, look at some of the other work or media, are there any specific places? Um, yeah, well, I um, I decided to, I'd actually build a website for the thesis. Um, the reason being that I wanted to make it as accessible as possible. And so although it will be bumped into the, you know, the same old usual suspects, the research gates and the academia and so mm. forth. Um, it's I've built its own standalone site. Um, on there, there is the text. I haven't actually added in the images yet, which is principally a download issue. It's because obviously the the more uh, you know, the more I build out the site with imagery and so forth, the potentially slower the download is, and I don't want to be creating a cumbersome site. So it's just the text at the moment, but it's all there. Um, and you can find that if you go to Panarchic Codex. The site will also have, it's got an ongoing interview series that I've started, which is to further build out some of the conversations that I started in the thesis, as well as to bring awareness to some of the characters who I've discussed in their work, because um, as I said, you know, I referenced Bowman, but there are many others who are, um, you know, their works are extraordinary and fascinating and and i i really would hope that a very many beyond the fire sciences and fire ecology community would start to read them because i think there's immense value uh to be found there there will also be a podcast series that's starting next month which essentially i'm migrating the thesis into audio and that is again to make it yet more accessible i today that are hard of sight or 
um, you know, that are reliant on audio uh, media alone. And there will be updates on the work. Um, unfortunately, obviously, because of the lockdown, any field research or indeed even lab research at the moment is uh, it too is on lockdown because, you know, can't physically get out there and do it. So the emphasis is very much on publishing, but it's all there. Um, and there's also the social media has just started going. So that's just starting to roll for anyone uh, that is interested. And, you know, I hope that, um, I mean, a lot of the work, you know, it is it is highly speculative um, and it is working with, um, you know, ideas that are that are very novel. But of course, you know, one of the primary um, underlying reasons for that is is because, you know, I want to provoke, I want to bring people's attention to possibilities that either weren't on the radar or were ignored for one or another reason. And, you know, more generally, you know, what I've been doing is I've been working transdisciplinary. So, you know, you'll have heard in that conversation, I was, you know, jumping between different subjects. Um, You know, what I would say today that that are working in this space is, when you're, um, you know, thinking to not merely how you structure your work, I and mean, it's, it's quite a task to work transdisciplinary because, of course, you've got to, well, in- invariably, you, you know, you've got to have a wider literary and general awareness of, of your um, domain because, you know, you're working with not one, but you're working with many subjects. But also, one of the big challenges, I think, not merely for researchers in the particular areas that I'm working, but more generally in the transdisciplinary space, is that it is quite difficult to find places that are really that really hit the sweet spot for um, for reaching the audiences that you want to, to reach. You know, in that yes, you you have lots of journals that are dedicated to this or to that discipline, and within of the academic world, they tend to be quite narrow in their um, content. Uh, the discussions and actually within of their audiences and of course in theory you know you could write a million and one papers that goes into a million and one journals and you know populate um, all of them but actually you know we all have time limitations and so another of the reasons that I actually built a site to host this work was because I was aware that at the moment there actually wasn't that sweet spot there wasn't somewhere that really hit the nail on the head of um, you know where I was looking to to um, take this this research, and so I thought you know what I'll build an open access site. We'll see how it goes. And actually, I've had a pretty good response. But um, yeah, feedback would be good. You know, if if um, folks jump on and they um, you know find something that's particularly interesting, or if there's something that you know is a bit niggly, then yeah, let let me know. As I said, the image with the, the issue with the images is 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 one of it's one of download speeds and I might be able to mitigate that through, through some other, some other fashion, but um, yeah, feedback, feedback would be great. And um, I hope, I hope that anyone who does take the time to drop by uh, at least finds it interesting, even if they don't agree with all of the points that are made. (laughs) (laughs) I will put all the links for sure underneath the podcast. Um, Lisa, thank you so much. I mean, this uh, definitely was one of the best hours I've had for for last week so thanks a lot for the conversation oh it's been a pleasure as always same thank you take care bye for now bye people